With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, he's back. Been a little bit since we've seen him, but he's busy because he's one of these freelance journalists. That means they got to really, really, really hustle, uh, but he's really good at what he does. He's also a young voices contributor and he has an opinion piece in usa today that's a good get my friend we're going to talk about it peter pitsky's back on her tell how are you sir uh doing good good to be here uh, great to have you back my friend you're one of those two like i forget you haven't been on the show because i talked to you so much and then it's like oh you weren't actually on the show i was just talking to you so we love keeping you in the rotation my friend this is a really important topic this is a topic that we have covered a lot on this program. In fact, when I first started doing this program, this is one of the one of the first shows I wanted to do was on opioids and pain pills and abuse and all those sorts of things. It ended up being about the fifth or sixth one we did, but it was one of the very first ones. I was like, I want to cover this. And we've covered it consistently over the course of this program. This is from the top down angle, though. So just kind of broad stroke this for us. The CDC, which everybody knows now after post-COVID, everybody's real familiar mm -hmm. with what they do, right? Or let me rephrase that, what they're supposed to be doing. They've come out with some guidelines when it comes to opioids and pain pills and pain patients specifically. Why is this a big deal? And why did you take to USA Today to try to explain it to folks? Yeah, so the quick of it is in 2016, uh, the CDC under pressure because people are blaming uh, pain pills for the opioid crisis, which is basically an illicit fentanyl crisis, the the crossover between your, your prescription that you get your pharmacy and what people are dying of on the street. There's very little cross-contamination between those groups. Anyhow, but that was the pressure. So they tried to solve with an opioids guideline, which they never done before, which basically sent a big signal out to the medical community that we do not want you prescribing opioids. It told law enforcement to come down hard on physicians and told state legislatures to start regulating more. That caused a mass wave of patient abandonment, not just in, not just pain patients, also people with cancer, palliative care, people at the end of life, also people who might need a surgery, sometimes acute care. So like if you go into the ER and you banged your head and you need uh, some hydrocodone, that would be harder to get. So they, they, people had been on top of them to fix this issue. It's been six years. And November, last November, they finally released their update. And some of the language is kind of positive, but as far as I can tell, it's just uh, make speak. It's not really all that serious. And in effect, this new guideline is more strict than the previous one. And from that, we are already seeing more patient abandonment people uh, reporting their pain clinics being closed, uh, being told they won't be able to get a, a, some pain medicine for when they have a surgery coming up, et cetera. And the CDC, what makes it worse is the CDC has used the language of, we care about pain patients, don't um, abandon them, don't force taper them. But when you actually read the document and the evidence, this is what regulators and uh, those in public health will look at to make their decisions, it's harsher. It's not, it's not, um, it's not more free, it's more strict. And this is gonna cause uh, potentially some serious damage for an issue where there's already been you know, a, a huge iceberg hit. Yeah, Peter Pinsky joining us. All right, let's break this down because there's a couple different moving parts here. Let's start with the pain pills themselves, opioids, whatever you wanna call them. Mm -hmm. They don't have any agency, they're just pills, they lay there, okay? They're just tools. 
you know, I can use a hammer to build a house or I can use a hammer to kill somebody. The tool doesn't care one way or the other, right? The pain pills, the problem here is the steps that go between the medication and the patient, be that government regulation, be that the physicians, be that the pharmaceutical companies that make them. We know all three of those layers, the government bureaucracy. We have had some physicians that have been untoward and we have multiple court cases about the opioid manufacturers and some of the untoward things they've done. Those are all true. How do we take that as a group, though? Because we have patients that need this medication. We have medications being abused, but there's all these steps in the middle. That's what the CDC is supposed to be stepping in and regulating. But are they? They don't seem they want to have uh, the authority to, to make big pronouncements for how opioids should be prescribed, but they don't want to actually have to deal with the consequences of their actions. Um, and, and the pain pill question, yes, there were some doctors that ran uh, pill mills. Um, there were some people where it was diversion, but those were pretty minor in comparison to the population. You got to remember, 100 million Americans or more every year you take an opioid for whatever reason. It is a basic building block of medicine. You don't have opioids, you don't have surgery. You don't have opioids, you don't have cancer care. You don't have opioids. I mean, you name the field of medicine, it's going to be very difficult to do it if we don't have a good way to deal with the pain. Uh, otherwise, people go into shock and they die. So it's a very basic building block and a ton of people use them. But there were people that got affected that were abusing it, particularly in Appalachia. And people thought, well, if we just make it so they can't get these pain pills, they'll make them stop their addiction, right? <laughs> yeah, as if that as if that strategy has uh, has worked yet all the many years we've now been trying to do this with the war on drugs. Anyhow, what came from that was that people moved on to more deadly substances. So they went from uh, oxycodone from uh, whoever they got. Usually they got from like a loved one or a friend or the office street. And they went from something that was relatively safe, or at least you knew what was in it, to stuff loaded with fentanyl, which is just killing oodles of people every year. Every year you now have 100 to 150,000 people are dying from fentanyl overdoses. Those fentanyl overdoses have nothing to do with pain patients. They have nothing to do with grandma that has cancer. That's not their fault. But that's who got blamed ultimately for what was happening with the crisis. And that's where the public pressure went. And the CDC, for all their positive qualities, they're a cowardly organization. So if, even if they know they're supposed to do something that is right, if they have pressure like we saw with COVID, it, that doesn't matter. The scientific inquiry doesn't really matter. It's what is the narrative? What looks important? How do we not get people uh, yelling down our throats? And that's what they went with. And here again, with the CDC and opioids, they've chosen a situation that puts uh, patients and those that need pain medicine at risk in favor of uh, pleasing the press and politicians. Now, Peter Pisky joining us. There's a couple of definition things we need to deal with. And, you know, you just talked about opioids. They're needed. They're good medicine when properly approved. Do we have a good handle on pain? I mean, the word, because we all use it. We all know, well, okay, we know what pain is. That's everything from ouchie to I can't deal with this and you pass out. That's a wide spectrum. Do we need to have a better conversation about things like pain and distinguish that from chronic pain and pain, you know, like somebody with end stage bone cancer, which is in the mm -hmm. most pain you can possibly be in as a human being compared to somebody that's, you know, lesser pain, that's acute pain that's going to go away in a day or two. Do we need a better discussion on that before we even get to the medication side of this? Probably. I think fundamentally that's a huge issue. I think Americans, we come from a very puritanical culture. We come from a very can-do culture. And people, when they hear pain, Americans, they don't think, oh, he has pain. That's a, that's a medical necessity. We need to get on top of it. They often think, well, just tough it out. 
It's just pain. If you can just get through it, then there will be no adverse consequences. That's not how it works. That's how people go into shock. That's, it doesn't work that way, but that's a lot what a lot of people think. And we need to understand modern medicine, as many tricks as we have in our tool bag, we do not have a good handle on pain. We are basically using you know, 10th century technology to deal with the issue. And we haven't really found the silver bullet, kind of like we found um, with antibiotics deal with infection. We don't really have that for pain yet. Maybe one day we will, maybe we will never. But we have to be honest about tools we have now and uh, adjust our policies and regulations for the population we have now and not play pretend with what might be in the future because the people are here this moment and they are suffering because you are not letting them get their basic pain prescription and they might have been a disability patient for 20 years or they might have documented end-stage cancer. It's ridiculous. Yeah, Peter Pipsky joining us. You just mentioned it. We say things, I'm guilty of this too. I say things like regulation, guidelines, things like this. We blow past what they actually are. This stuff has to be written down. Laws, especially regulations, especially medical guidelines. The black and white really matters. And the terminology in the black and white really matters. And you get into it in your piece in USA Today is what's supposed to be guidelines. And you already mentioned it. The CDC likes to make these broad pronouncements. So they make these pronouncements and then doctors adjust to it. The, you know, the drug companies adjust to it. The patients are trying to adjust to it. Are the actual written down black and white regulations matching what they're saying? Because that's part of the problem here, too. For the most part, no. There are a few tweaks that are positive, um, and we're glad they're there. But for the most part, no. Mostly, that's the hardest part of this new guideline is when they did the presser, um, when the head of the NCIPC, who's the, that's the National Center for Injury Prevention, they're the group in charge of guidelines. When they went out there, they said, oh, we're doing this to help pain patients, you know, shouldn't ban your pain patients, et cetera, et cetera. That's the front. But then you go into the part that people actually look like, and they know this, they have all the data we do. They have, they know how all this works. And that's the part that matters. And that's the one that's two-faced. And I know many people want to give them credit for, for the tweaks they have made. And those are good, but it's 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 you know if the meteor is heading towards earth and you you knock a few chips off it it's still a great you know huge ball of death coming at you that doesn't solve the problem and the problem is we have a massive issue of people not being able to access pain medicines and those around it for very serious issues and that is just that's just hurting a lot of people the cc know it but the cc don't want to take the responsibility of what it would take to undo this or at least tell people please knock it off you know, there are legitimate people that need this. And that actually means you might have to change your laws or how you handle the situation. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Yeah, Peter Pitsky joining us journalist, writer, a good friend of the programs. You go through the numbers here, but for the audience, look, this is terminology heavy. People, you start talking about MME levels, people's eyes start rolling around. When people try to look at this in a news context, a news story, and in your piece, what's one of the numbers or one or two of the numbers that they need to really key on, even if they don't have the medical background, to understand what these changes mean and what should pique their interest to dig into these a little further? Yeah, I think so. The pain patient ones, while those are very important and it's flabbergasting what those numbers mean, a lot of people will sometimes say, well, you know, they, they can, like I said, they can live through that. Why does it matter? So let's move past that. Let's go to something everyone agrees on cancer, end of life, right? There is no justifiable reason for someone that is dying that you shouldn't be able to get them some oxycodone. Okay, what they're going to get addicted, they're going to die anyways. Okay, so everyone probably agrees on that. So what has happened to cancer patients? And here are three basic stats. Uh, it's in the article, I'll just read from it. A 2020 study from the National Center of Institute found a 21% decrease in opioid prescriptions from oncologists, which means those that are cancer doctors for patients, 21% decrease. A study in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management found that hospice patients who had an opioid prescription when discharged dropped from 91% in 2010 to 79% in 2018. So that means less people who are at end of life are being given access to pain medicine. And here's this last one, which just blows my mind. Other research like last year's study from the Journal of Clinical Oncology shockingly found that the number of opioids prescribed per destinate, so those who died on Medicare declined 38%, while the number of emergency room visits for these patients increased by over 50%. So we have a situation where even people who are at end of life, even people with cancer, we are seeing dramatic decreases in access to pain medicine. And when they are getting pain medicine, the amount is being decreased. And there, there just is no moral or scientific justification to me that makes any of that make sense. I know we can disagree about uh, addiction and you know what is necessary to fix there, but there is no justification for this stat. What, it's just crazy, it's insane. Yeah, Peter Pisky joining us. Is part of the problem here what we've already talked about? Look, CDC, no matter what its stated goal is, it's still a government bureaucracy, a very big government bureaucracy at that. Government bureaucracy is not nimble. That's not what they do. We learned that during COVID. Yep. You know, they just don't change quick. You have different kinds of medicine, palliative, palliative care. You just talked about it, end of life care, where the standards should probably be a little different emergency room care where there's obviously going to be a need for immediate pain management so you can find out what's going on because you may have a trauma situation. I'll use myself as an example. I remember when I had my heart surgery, my cardiologist famously would walk Dr. Leonard do God bless him. Love the guy. Can't save my life. He walks in. He's like, I've never had a patient die of pain. You'll be okay with the pain, but he's a cardiologist. He's, you know, pain pills mm -hmm. slows down your heart. It affects your blood pressure. That's a different thing than when I see my GI doctor, who's like, no, we need to manage your pain so we can find out whether you're working or not. Medicine has different components. It seems to me just on the outside reading through this material, we don't do a real good job of distinguishing between those when it comes to something like pain medicine, like 
palliative care should probably have a little looser regulation than maybe, you know, chronic care should have, than maybe emergency care should have. Is that a fair way of looking and asking and getting into some of these questions, do you think? Yes, very fair. The other problem is, is that it's thankfully medicine, for the most part, our institutions are intact than say a lot of uh, other American institutions. But the problem with medicine is they can very much get into the regulatory bureaucracy. And if they get stuck on a bad idea, it might take them 10, 20 years to get out of it. Uh, it so even though we know, for example, that what we knew about Alzheimer drugs and what causes Alzheimer's is bunk, it's still taking forever for us to get away from that. And for the people who are on the CC, I'm sure some of them feel that they did make big changes here. But for the normal person and who these affect, these are piecemeal changes. And at the rate of change they're doing this, it's going to take a long time for things to really switch and to get better. And while for them it's an academic question, for the people that are living their lives who can't get pain medicine right now, that is real life. That is past academic. But medicine is not set up in such a way to be able to respond to things. This is why COVID was so it was so hard to get rid of bad ideas or to move on from them because that's not how our medic medical uh, regulatory agencies and institutions like the AMA work. Yeah, Peter Pisky joining us. You mentioned academically, there's also a legal component to this. You talk about it in your piece in USA Today. Look, we understand that one of the problems with medicine is it's human lives and government bureaucracy and medical science and a business component all underneath a legal umbrella of liability. That's a big ball of mess to try to deal with on a good day, right? Mm -hmm. But you mentioned it here, the way they're dealing with this and these new guidelines and the way they're trying to deal with some of the prescription monitoring, and you can explain that. If you're putting prescribers or medical people in a legally tough situation, they're not going to touch it because they've already got liability out the wazoo. They already have to pay for their malpractice insurance and all this. We've seen this in other areas of regulation. If you start giving them an iffy legal situation, they're just going to stop doing it altogether to protect themselves, which is yep. understandable, right? There's a danger to that, to the prescription process, if these guidelines go through and you cover it and you just kind of lay it out. So there's like the potential legal liability for prescribers here. This could be a real, real bad issue. Yes, definitely. Human nature is to avoid risk. We we this goes back to our cavemen days where we we have we take risk and we over escalate. I can't escalate it because if we get that wrong, we're dead. So humans naturally take risk and they pump it up in their heads. For physicians, you have to remember the kind of burns they're dealing with. They're spending 45 minutes usually on paperwork per patient. They have to deal with all, like you said, the legal uh, consequences that sometimes come with this. And if the CDC says something like, you know, yes, you have to, when you prescribe people payments, you also prescribe Narcan. For us, it's like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, that makes sense. But for a doctor, like, so you're saying if I mess this up, that I might get, you know, uh, caught by law enforcement, I'll be in a civil suit. And that's how they work. They, they see the, they see the risk. And in the United States, the, a medical tort is just humongous. So the chances of risk for these physicians, I mean, my brother is going through medical school now, residency right now. And that's a main thing they teach you. You have to be so careful, not even, it's not even an issue of treating your patient badly, but to have the appearance of mishandling it. And so when you take something like opioids and they're so politically charged um, in politics and the media and the narrative, they're not going to touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. They might be good people and they might love treating their patients, but if they, if they have most of them at the end of the day, if they have to choose between their careers and livelihood and not going to jail and their pain patient, 
They're picking the former, which is understandable. That doesn't make it right, but that's the situation we're in currently. Peter Pitsky, um, you talked about another thing in your piece that I think is really important to talk about. We've seen this in other areas of government regulation. It's been talked about a lot recently, especially post-COVID. When government does a guideline, it becomes a de facto mandate. We've seen this through COVID. We've seen this in other areas of regulation, both medical and in other things. These regulatory agencies doing guidelines, and then they get enforced as if they're mandates. Well, that's one thing when you're closing a business or doing a safety thing or something like that. When you start dealing with people's medication, this seems to me like one area where we really need to get some very specific answers on what they can and can't do, shouldn't we? Yeah. As Jeffrey Singer uh, said, I shared some of that quote. Um, when the government gives you a recommendation, that's like the mob giving you a recommendation. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're, we're, you know. Uh, we would like you to please donate. We think it would be good for your security. Yeah, no, it, it, people do not interpret that way. There isn't a way in our framework culturally or legally to do that. So pe people who say, is this the law or is it not? Even if they know better, even if they're scholars or they're esteemed politicians or what have you, that's just how it works, okay? And, and part of this, I think part of all this stuff is that we're pretending that it doesn't work like that. And then we can just make big pronouncements and make little tweaks and it'll be okay. When the actuality is people interpret these things in a very basic way and human nature is basically known. Yeah, Peter Pitsky joining us. Okay, we know the numbers. You have them all throughout your piece. We're going to link to it, by the way. Read the whole thing. It's got a lot of links in there too. You want to read through the links and, and go through all the stuff he lays out. If we have so many Americans that need some form of pain medication or pain treatment, here's the problem. We just saw with the speaker fight, they, nobody shut down Congress over pain pill management or the CDC. You know, we haven't had a presidential debate question on the CDC that I remember in my lifetime. This is not a front burner in the political and commentary sphere right now. But this seems like it affects so many more people than a lot of the political things we're discussing day to day. How do we get this conversation more into the daily talk when we talk about it on our social media, when folks are just talking with their family? Because, look, you're, if it's not you, you're going to have a family member that has this situation, right? Just statistically, it's going to happen. How do we individually start talking about this differently to start pushing the ball forward? Because this seems to me like one of those things that's going to be the public pushing the policy more than the policy pushing the public, right? Yes, and it, it will it'll be slow. Uh, I believe I do believe change will happen. I I hope sooner rather than later. But you're right. There isn't there isn't really any vested interest that would benefit by letting people have access to pain medicine and leaving them alone. I think for individuals, you need to if you have a story of yourself or a loved one that have been mistreated medically. You should share that story. I think if 
you have a chance to talk to a legislator or someone in the media and that's a concern you should talk about to them a big part of this is the stigma of uh, people in media for example when i was pitching this piece ever i didn't think anyone would care about it when we got through with usda by the way awesome really loved working with them the the outreach was crazy the amount of people that responded it's one of the most successful pieces i've done traffic wise and that's because there's so many people being affected by it so there is there is a population there and i think if there's a bit of a, a an illusion here that it, it isn't big and that it doesn't matter but what happens in individual lives when you're a loved one you know my grandma has congestive heart failure right now when you lose a loved one when you're going through these health crises these are some of the most meaningful and difficult episodes of your life they mean something and that's that's powerful that is a powerful fact that will transcend politics or anything else but we probably have to be a little brave in sharing their, these stories and getting it out there all right peter pisky let's let's zoom out for a second though because one of the nice things of this medium is you didn't just write the piece and put it out there's been a lot of re there's been a lot of response. There's been pushback. There's been corrections. There's been people talking about it. You've seen a lot of stuff move with this piece more than probably, I think you said this is the most read thing you've ever done. What is the response to this piece taught you? Give us the after the story kind of thing. Cause we always write it and it's like you put it out in the atmosphere and hope somebody reads it. You don't have to wonder, man, this stuff, this thing moves some numbers. What have you learned from the response that makes you think about this subject a little differently maybe? One thing I think I've learned is that it, it crosses political borders and there are very few issues that do. No one, no one came to it as a Republican or Democrat. No one really came to it uh, from a class view or a race view. It seems to be a very, you know, there are very few things that are, the, there are these way these days for issues, but it seems to cross all divides. Um, I also learned it's much more thorough and impacting than even I quite realized. I think part of that is we've had an increase since November. Uh, a little difficult on me emotionally, if I'm being honest, because so many people reached out to me on email, um, direct messages, Facebook, et cetera, telling me, thank you so much for sharing it. And then they would tell me something that happened to them or something that happened to a loved one. And that's heavy. And those are, it, it makes me a little depressed because I feel that there are just so many people who are suffering whose stories aren't being told. It, it gives me hope maybe in the sense that we will get past this because enough people are affected um in the end the numbers win i think that's what we learned with the prohibition but it, it takes time and how much time i do not know but i pray for all of our sakes it is much sooner rather than later yeah peter pitsky we're going to link to the piece it's in usa today it's had a huge response i saw a lot of real big name people on social media what really blew me away was it was across the spectrum it you know People that if they interacted with each other would not get along at all. And they were all retweeting this piece and making comments about it. That's pretty special. Um, let me ask it to you this way, though. When you get a response like that, it feels like this is an issue just begging for more attention. What do you think the next steps are? We know the CDC is a big beast. We got kind of a divided Congress. Is it going to be a local level? You mentioned in your piece, there's some like 38 state legislatures that are re already legislatively reacting to this. Is it going to be a legislative fix at the state level? Is it going to be a policy fix in the national level? What do you think the next steps are for this subject? National could solve it, but they aren't going to take it up because they don't like doing their job on anything, let alone something unpopular. Uh, your best bet, things will change is state-wise. And it's it, we, we don't quite know because we've had some amazing laws passed the last two years. 
Um, there's a fantastic law in New Hampshire. Minnesota just passed a great law. There's uh, Oregon has seen some great legislation. But when those come in conflict with law enforcement, who sometimes ignore a lot of this stuff, when it comes to conflict of the state medical boards, it's hard to tell who wins. State medical boards, I think, is where we'll see the most change because I think those are fed by the physicians and they are in the medical community. And though they're sometimes slow to respond to it, it's going to catch up at some point. I think if we were going to focus on where there actually might be potential for change, it's that level. And just people being aware of this and, and making it part of, you know, their charitable efforts. You know, this is just something you kind of need to be aware of. And let's, you know, your neighbor, Nancy, doesn't have access to her payments. Well, you know, let's bring her some soup. I don't <laughs> like let's let's take care of each other and treat each other neighborly like we should for any other heavy thing. And this is just another one of them. Yeah, well, you definitely hit a nerve with this piece. I'm excited for you. I'm glad that people are recognizing what a great writer you are and the way you can provoke thought on an important topic. So well done, sir. You actually do mostly culture stuff, though, and other things. You also cover disability and the opioid crisis. You cover a lot of swath, my friend. So let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on, and where they can keep up with you until we get you on Hertel again. Yeah, it is, a, it is quite eclectic. I don't know how I ended up in this position. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at HappyWarriorP. Um, I, I do write and I kind of get all over the place. So you can usually find me on Google or find me on Twitter. I do a, a culture podcast, Culturescape, which is kind of fun. It's just, it's, yeah, I just pretty much do that just for me, just because I like the topic. Um, but yeah, and I appreciate you saying that. You know, I love your work, Andrew. I, it's been an honor to be able to interact with you. I wish I had better news. Like I, I like I'm glad that people are uh, gelling with this article, but th at the same time, it's like, oh shoot, <laughs> this is not good. This situation is really bad, uh, and I, I just wish it wasn't this way. Yeah, the the military term is you screw yourself into a job. So now people are going to be like, hey, write me another piece on that over and over again. But the flip side of that is it's really important, and you stumbled onto something that you both care about, and you are knowledgeable on and it really hit a vein. So just please keep the good work coming. Uh, Culturescape podcast, something he does as well. A lot of fun. Make sure you're following that. He's a young voices contributor. We're going to have him on anytime he wants to come on. Cause he's a great writer, good reporter, Peter Pitchkey. Thank you so much for the time, sir. Oh, thank you. Yes, sir. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. 
Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we're excited to have her. She has become our Western correspondent because she's out there in the beautiful Front Range of Colorado, which I got to enjoy back in October. We'll talk about that in a minute. Chris Kiefer, she's a columnist at the Denver Post. She has a whole bunch of animals, including a cat in her lap, if you're watching on the YouTube channel, and we're going to talk to her like we love to do. How are you, ma'am? Great to have you back on the program. It is good to be back. Um, yeah, it's, it's rather cold here, um, but uh, we're having a great day. Yeah, y'all went through the one of the viral videos of the bomb cyclone or whatever everybody went through over the holidays there was the live shot with time lapse of Denver where it went from nice to Antarctica in about 45 minutes. For people that don't live in the mountains and at altitude like that, just explain to them how fast the wet look, I was there last week of October and it was 75 every day. Talk to people about just how fast the weather changes on the front range up there, because it really is something you can sit there and watch the weather coming at you. Yes, it is pretty crazy here because we are at a higher altitude. We get epic hail, unfortunately, in the uh, spring, summer and fall. I've got uh, I've had golf ball size hail hit my house uh, to say that if you're in the insurance industry, this might be a good place to relocate. Um but yeah, it can change from, it can be 75 degrees in the winter with bright sunshine and then drop down into like the 30s. It's been a cold winter, which I think is nice. I like snow, but uh, not everybody does. Yeah. All right. So as a columnist, you tackle the important issues of the day. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Or in this case, as you're writing, which came first, the cost increase in poultry or the cost increase in the eggs? Well, it, it, the problem here is that a lot of our poultry has died. So we've lost 6 million birds from avian flu. We've also lost a lot of wild birds, uh, great horned owls, also uh, red-tailed hawks, uh, very susceptible to avian flu. I have a flock of five hens. Luckily, they have not gotten avian flu, but it has been a big deal. In fact, in December, I think uh, well over a million birds slaughtered because of, of avian flu, and that has driven the price of eggs up. It's not a Colorado problem exclusively. 47 states have had an issue with avian flu, and it's driven the price of eggs pretty pretty high. Yeah, Krista Key for joining us. Here's the problem with eggs is cost of living is going up for everybody. Of course, we know about inflation. Poultry is one of those things that covers a couple of different things because they do produce eggs. They're also, you know, they also produce feed for other animals. They also produce meat and chicken as we buy it, which is one of the most popular meats in America. It's also historically supposed to be the cheaper meat, you know, the little bit more affordable meat. So this crosses a couple different streams all at once, doesn't it? So well, uh, I don't know that meat hens have been as affected. Uh, meat birds basically have a lifespan of about six months. Uh, once hatched, they sit around gaining, you know, uh, gaining mass basically for six months and then they're slaughtered. 
Laying hens usually kept around for about two years. I keep mine for the natural lifespan, which is up to 10 years, but usually around two, they slaughter those birds and they become your Campbell's chicken noodle soup just because layers are a little too, too tough for people to have on their kitchen table just as a roasted hen. But yes, it is a, it is a big deal. Avian flu is a significant problem. It doesn't actually transfer to humans, but it kills an awful lot of birds. Yeah, and then the thing that happens here is it gets into, th- you know, avian flu has been around for a long time. This is something that it almost seems cyclical at this point, right? Every couple of years we have an mm-hmm. outbreak of this. But it goes right back into something we've talked about before and we've talked with you about before. Here we go again with a conversation of how do we balance an economic concern, which is, you know, food needs to be as cheap as possible for as many people as possible to afford it with humanitarian concerns, how these birds are taken care of, even though they are for food production. That's a big deal because when you start talking about losing six million birds, the reason you lose so many in avian flu is because they're kept in tight quarters. They're all, but it's just like we went through with COVID, you know, infectious disease spreads in bunches. Well, poultry farms to be cost effective have to be bunches of birds. I've seen the mountain air farms we have near where I live before. There's no way really around that, but it brings us back to the old conversation again. How do we balance economic concerns and feeding everybody with also being humane to these animals? And that definitely is a concern. Here in Colorado, two years ago, the legislature passed a, a new law saying that all of the chickens have to have uh, about a square foot of space, which seems pretty minimal, if you ask me. In the past the past number of decades, the kind of big factory farms have started pushing for tighter and tighter quarters. So you've got a whole bunch of hens in a cage, barely able to move, spend their lives standing on, on you know, metal, metal bars while uh, eating food and, and creating eggs. And consumers are saying, we don't, we don't want that anymore. Yeah, we want economically sound uh, egg policies, but we do not necessarily want animals to be treated cruelly. So consumers are pushing towards more humane options, cage-free and free-range, not exactly the same thing, but at least get these birds out of these cages. Large entities, big restaurants like Burger King, Marriott, and so forth are, are also moving towards purchasing eggs from humane operations. And now legislator, legislatures around the country, maybe less than a dozen, have put forth rules that say, if you want to sell eggs in this state, your hens have to have at least a square foot of space. And then starting next year, at least have to be out of the cage. That doesn't mean they you know, can't be packed into a big room, but at least they can move around a little bit. Yeah, Krista Kay for joining us. I like it when you wrote about this in your pieces, and we're going to link to her Substack where she reruns her columns as well. This is so much not a new problem that you quoted something from 1641, the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. That is not a, you know, I don't know what that sounds like, but the Massachusetts Body of Liberties was actually a political thing, policy-making arm, I guess you would call it in modern parlance. I'm not going to try to pronounce it because they wrote it in the old English kind of things, but... 1641 to today, and here they are talking about the exact same issues. Yeah, that was the first uh, kind of uh, humane treatment standards set up in this country during the colonial era. But even if we go back in time, if you look at the old you know, Hebrew law, for example, there are some some uh, rules in there about how you treat your animals. Um, you know, even on the Sabbath, if your oxen or your donkey falls into a hole you still can pull that animal out. Um, 
you know, this expectation that animals that are used as beasts of burden, also animals that are used as food, are treated humanely. And I'm a big meat eater. I love, uh, uh, you know, I love a good steak. I love game. I'm always telling people that I'll trade my homemade jam for any game they can give me. But I, I don't want animals treated poorly simply so that I can eat their protein. I want animals to be treated well. And if we look at with cattle, cattle had pretty decent lives because they spent a good deal of their life out in the field. But pigs and chickens are treated really abysmally in a lot of cases. And we're, I'm, I'm 100% behind these new rules to make sure that they've got at least some quality of life while they're alive. Yeah, Krista Caver. It's funny you mentioned cows in comparison. Um, Yellowstone's immensely popular, most popular TV show in America right now. The opening scene of the first episode was the the bullet line on the first scene was Kevin Costner looking at the cow and going, amazing what we do to keep you fed, right? We understand <laughs> that you know livestock is money. It's a commodity, not just food. We talked before with you about pork. Um, now we're talking about chickens. There does seem to be an overarching, we're joking about this 1641 law that's written about tyranny and tyranny spelled T-I-R-R-A-N-N-Y and cruelty is uh, with an I-E at the end. You know, there does seem to be a thread where people are like, okay, look, there's got to be a way to do both with modern technology. You know, this is another one of those things social media changed is because we have pictures inside those facilities. Look, I've been on the kill floor at Smithfield Processing. It is not pretty. People don't want to see that especially people that want to eat meat. We know what we can see it now. We're in the past. You couldn't see where your food came from. People want a balance. So where is the balance? Is it going to be a regulatory fix? Is it going to be a legislative fix? Or is it just going to be public pressure in the market saying that? Or is it a combination thereof? I think it's a combination thereof. So a couple of years ago, I started buying cage-free eggs, but not that much more money. Um, I don't bother with the whole organic thing. <laughs> Here's a kind of funny thing. People say, you'll, you'll look at these expensive eggs and it'll say vegetarian fed. Well, you know, hens are omnivores. If I throw meat into my, the pen where I keep my hens, they'll fight over it. They'll, they'll share the salad, but they'll fight over the meat. So, you know, if you see organic or, you know, vegetarian on that label, it doesn't really mean much, except that those poor hens are deprived the pleasure of meat. But the cage-free option or even the free-range option, I think, is something that customers really need to look for. I also have my own hens, which lay about 10 months out of the year, so I don't even buy eggs much of the time. And I give away a lot of eggs because they're good producers. So I, I, I think that consumers can make good choices, but at some point you will always have market pressures, consumers who don't care about humane standards, and producers who also do not care about humane standards. And that's where you have to have the legislature stepping in. Yeah. Chris K for joining us. You just mentioned it. So let's talk about it for folks that, you know, like I've, I've got a local pork guy that I go to, but I can only do that about four or five times a year. Cause he's a small family farm. He only goes, he can only do it when he goes to processing. And then he calls me like, Hey, I'm coming back from the processor. What do you want? I can't feed my family like that. And most other people can, and a lot of people don't even have that options. So when they just go to a grocery store, what are they looking for? Because the late, you know, people label about everything. You know, my local grocery chain does have a local label for certain things, but some folks don't have that. What should they actually look at? Look, you're somebody that pays attention to this. You raise your own chickens, like you said. Give them a few things to look for beyond just the marketing labels to know that they can feel good about what they're getting. I would look for cage-free or free-range. So cage-free means they're not in a cage, but they are in a, in a big facility. There's a lot of birds in one place. It's not necessarily inhumane, but 
cage free is that's what cage free is if you do free range those animals have a lot more space and i buy one or the other depending on the price and then when it comes to uh, meat hens um, those hens are also often treated really poorly and i'm kind of moving away as much as i love chicken i am kind of moving away from both chicken and pork unless i can make sure that i'm getting those animals from a humane operation and i'm just simply eating a lot more beef uh, just because i know those animals are treated treated well Chris Kay for joining us. Okay, you're out in Colorado. So one of the things is, is when you're from a particular area of the country and you're a media commentator, you get stuck talking about particular people from that area that you need to commentate on, right? Yes. Um, you're all, everybody's favorite GOP uh, congressperson. And of course, that changes based on who you talk to. You wrote about Lauren Boebert. Here's where I want to start with before we get to the speaker fight and her being front and center on that the last few days. When I was out in Colorado into October, of course, they're almost time for the election. I wasn't in her district, but I asked some folks because I was just curious because I'm a national guy. All I know is what I read. You see the trade. So I just asked people in Colorado what they thought. I was really surprised because a lot of them was like, hey, we, we think this is going to be a closer election than you think. People aren't really super happy with her. She had her district redrawn. People actually thought it might be even more favorable towards her. And she underperformed a lot. She barely survived that election. You're actually there. You cover You're writing about it again. We'll link to your sub stack on the piece that you wrote about her. You said this is a pretty clear message to her about what she should and shouldn't do if she wants to survive in 2024. We all saw the speaker fight. She was all over the national news. Was that a step towards or a step away from what you were saying she should have learned from the election in 2022? I'm thinking maybe she didn't learn. So she, she won by about 500 votes. And this is after scandals came out about her opponents. So, and it's a, it is a, it's a plus eight district. It's a heavily Republican district. And a lot of folks were saying, I, I'm tired of her style. In fact, Trump-like Trump -like candidates did far worse than non-Trump-like candidates in the state, even in very conservative districts. So if you look at her district, the, the statewide candidates who are not Trumpians, for the most part, did better than her in her own district. People don't like the, you know, when you scream out during the State of the Union, they don't, they don't like that stuff. They don't like, you know, showy, I'm, I'm, you know, running around with a pistol on my hip and I'm saying stupid stuff. A, a subs, a, you know, a, a certain amount of people do like that because they think it's quote unquote fighting back. Um, I'm not sure it seems more like you're punching the air, but I don't know that she learned the lesson. I also think it's just her. She is, uh, so I call her the plucky pugilist. She she likes to fight. She's not a serious person, uh, and this, and she loves the attention. She loves the camera. But you know that you've kind of crossed the line when Sean Hannity takes you to task for things you've said and done. Uh, perhaps you've crossed the line. What is the electorate in Colorado? Because Colorado is a very complicated place right now politically. There's a lot of cross streams. We talked about it before. I find Colorado really fascinating because. 
you have a lot of progressivism, but you also have some real deep pockets. You have some national, really super conservative groups and religious groups that are headquartered there. You also have an openly gay governor. You have a lot of inclusion. You have a lot of tradition and history. There's a lot of cross streams when it comes to Colorado. We understand that a congressional district can be pretty insular. But when you see something like what happened in the speaker fight, if she winds up getting isolated where she's not really part of the water caucus and just doing the online stuff, is that something the electorate in Colorado is paying attention to? Do they put those two things together? It's like, look, you're on TV, but you're not really doing anything for us or the other way around. How does it land with the people there that you're around? I honestly think that if she had a strong primary contender, she had a, a really good person as a primary contender last time around, Don Corum, seasoned legislator, but you know, a man in his 70s, man uh, already in office and, and working for the people. And I, I think you need somebody who's younger and dynamic to take her on at the primary level. And I think it could happen. So Colorado, like you said, is kind of a complicated place. I grew up here. It was much more of a purple state then where you could get a Republican governor. You very often had a Republican secretary of state, Republican attorney general. The state got an influx of millions of people, many of whom were, were Democrats, frankly, and now the numbers just don't look good. So Democrats outnumber Republicans in the state by, by a pretty substantial margin, with the exception of a couple of areas that remain Republican strongholds. Colorado Springs, we're focused on the family, its headquartered, that is one of those areas. The eastern part of the state, held by Ken Buck, also conservative, a lot of uh, farms, small towns. And then the, the mountains do have some uh, you know, ski areas, wealthy Democrat strongholds like Aspen, but then the rest of the mountains, including the largest mountain city there, which is Grand Junction, is a republic is Republican. So it, you know, you have strong candidates in those areas, you can have Republicans in office. The Weld County in the north should have gone Republican, but there was a libertarian spoiler that made a very liberal Democrat take that area. I think it's possible that in the future that could be picked up as well. But I, I, I do think that uh, Bobert is the weakest link. I also think she's an embarrassment to the party. Uh, things that she says are, are pretty cringeworthy. Here's the irony though, is over the speaker fight, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a, a definitely more cringeworthy candidate or uh, sitting office holder actually went after Bobert and now they're no longer besties. And Bobert is complaining about Green and Green complaining about Bobert. So, you know, if you don't like to watch the Kardashians, you can always watch C-SPAN. Yeah, this is true, Krista Kafer. Let's be adults here, though. Marjorie Taylor Greene buddied up to uh, Kevin McCarley because she wants her committee assignments back because, remember, she was stripped of that for her previous behavior. So that's why that's going on. And uh, But, you know, you do. That's one of those you just sit back and like, nope, let them fight. Uh, one more thing on Colorado politics, though. You just mentioned it. We have a delineated line from some of these elections now. People don't like chaos and they don't like the crazy. And by crazy, we mean the election denial stuff. You just mentioned it. If this Congress, the GOP majority Congress for the next two years, 
look, we know legislatively they're going to be pretty limited just by the math and they don't have the Senate. And we've already seen the case. Look, they can't do the easy stuff. I'm calling me skeptical. They're going to get something big pushed through. If they just have nothing but investigations and that sort of rhetoric going into 2024, you just mentioned that Colorado is as a pretty purple could go either way state in a lot of these races. How's that going to play, do you think, if all they have is the Internet stuff, the investigation stuff? Not that there's maybe some important things there that needs to be done, but if that's all they got going in, how's that going to play? Well, the percentage of people out there who genuinely care about Biden's laptop is, I don't know, 10 percent, 15 percent. So if you focus all of your time on investigations of of a silly nature, I, I do think that the debacle in Afghanistan deserves some investigations. But the other stuff. It's not serious. I think that the Republican Party needs to become, uh, again, that sort of big tent party as opposed to trying to uh, excite that 10, 15% of the, the, the deep red base. And that means putting forth serious ideas and, and being the party that is a serious alternative to Democrat policies. And Democrats, the, the policies are bad. Uh, the whole idea that we can tax and spend our way out of a, a out of a deficit or or a debt hole, the fact that we can um, you know continue to overregulate the economy, drive up inflation, Democrats need to own that, and they will own that when Republicans put forth serious ideas and get away from Trump and the far right fringe. Yeah, I think so too, Krista Kafer. We always enjoy talking to you. One more thing, just. What's some of the things, because look, East Coast, West Coast media bias is a real thing. What's a couple things out West that's playing kind of big picture over the next year? We know Congress and that sort of thing. What's a story or two you're just kind of keeping dog-eared for uh, this could pop off in the spring or the summertime? What's one or two things you're watching that maybe the East Coast isn't paying attention to out West? What do you got on your radar? Well, we definitely have issues with water out here. And so they, you know, there's the, the Western states, there's the upper basin and lower basin for the Colorado River and figuring out how to divvy up that water, how to keep the, the dams that power up Las Vegas, uh, keep those dams and, and generators running is important. But also places like Arizona and California are kind of the breadbasket of the nation. Um, what do we need to do to make sure that that water eventually ends up going south, uh, as well as uh, being able to supply front range with water. And of course, we also have a big agricultural community here. And that's a little boring and wonky, but my eye is always there. Also, what happens when we don't have enough employees to, to, to work at restaurants, to work at retail outlets? What happens when sort of the, the change of population and we get that, that uh, we get fewer workers what is that ultimately going to do for our economy is something that I, 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 I am keeping an eye on. I think about my great-grandparents had 12 kids. My grandparents had five. My parents had two. My sister had one, and I have no children. What happens when the population starts to uh, decrease? What does that do to the economy? That's kind of a long-term thing, not obviously specifically West, something that's going to affect, I think, the entire country. Yeah, that's a good one. One thing about it, though, is when you get those workers out there in the Denver area, one about those toll roads. I saw when my bill popped up after being out there for a week. Good Lord. I'm telling you, <laughs> I thought the West Virginia. It's gotten expensive here. 
May I, I racked up about 90 bucks for us in about five days. It was pretty oh, amazing. God. But um, anyway, I still enjoyed it. Denver was great. Highly recommended. Uh, Krista Kafer, always enjoy you. Till we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can keep up with you. We're going to link to your Substack. Let people know where they can find it. Your column at the Denver Post and everything else you got going on, my friend. Well, let's see. I got the Denver Post column. I got the Substack. I'm occasionally on... 850 KOA and also 630 KO if you're within the <clears throat> within the reach of those radio stations. And then I also appear on Channel 12's Colorado Inside Out on occasion. So that's that's what I got going on. My biggest publicity, obviously, heard you tell. Yeah, I, I hope so, but I'm not sure we're there yet. I mean it, though. Denver was a wonderful place. Actually, um, some of the people we were out there for a wedding, they're going to be having a baby next year. Hopefully get back out there. Maybe we'll do food sometime, do this live. So we don't have all the technical issues we had this time, my friend, Chris Kafer. Always great having you, my friend. Great. Yeah, great being there. And yeah, let's uh, yeah, let's get together and have a big bowl of chili. Sounds good. Talk soon. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Hertel program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.